It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Elling. Coming up on episode number 30 of Sports Day Plus. At 6.15, taking a multi-segment look at the best food in Austin in 2023 and what's to come in 2024 with Statesman food critic Matthew Odom. And a mere seconds, NFL Week 14 is in the books, and Cowboys fans should feel pretty good about where their team is right now. I am your host, Trey Elling. You can give me a follow on Twitter, at Courtesy Wave, and do the same for ESPN Austin at 1027 ESPN. Well, if the 2023 NFL season has taught us nothing else, it's that... The sport has reached peak parity. We are now 14 weeks into the 2023 season, as I mentioned in the intro. And 13, which isn't quite half, but really close, of the teams in this league are either at 7-6 and six or 6-7. Six and seven. It is a year much like in college football in a lot of ways, where it doesn't feel like there's one that dom- there's that one dominant team. Although the San Francisco 49ers might suggest otherwise, even they have had a uh, strange sequence of struggles this year. But they are clicking on all cylinders right now. And if there is a second team in this league that looks like it is head and shoulders above the rest, I got to give you some love, Cowboys fans. I think it's your team right now. While they have been handing out beatdowns on the opposition for a couple of months now, the thinking during that stretch is, well, they're doing this to a bunch of bad competition. And they were. But the end-of-season stretch for this Cowboys team is going to give them an opportunity to show that they have the ability to do that against better teams as well. It started... Two Thursdays ago, in a game against the Seattle Seahawks, who are fighting for their playoff lives right now, Seattle was in control of that game. Into the second half, but the Cowboys eventually got their act together, came back and won. Setting up a huge divisional matchup on Sunday Night Football this past weekend with the Philadelphia Eagles. Dallas, just a few weeks ago, was very close to beating the Eagles, and Philly... And unfortunately, self-destructed in the midst of what could have been a game-winning touchdown drive. Well, there were no questions about who was going to win this game. Early on, it felt like Dallas was not going to let the lead slip away. But Dallas, who has been exceptional at home going back to last season now, Wins another game at AT AT&T Stadium, this time beating their division rival 33-13. Dak Prescott squarely in the MVP conversation right now. CeeDee Lamb does really finally look like that bona fide number one wide receiver, one of the top wideouts in the league as it stands. How about Jake Ferguson really coming on at the tight end position? There were some legitimate questions being asked a month into the year as to whether... The Cowboys had taken Dalton Schultz for granted. 
while he's done some decent things for the Texans this year, Jake Ferguson is quickly making people forget about Dalton Schultz and just about every other tight end from the Cowboys past. Tony Pollard still coming along. And that defense, they just keep finding guys who step up when somebody else goes down and making things happen. Obviously, having Micah Parsons on that side of the ball helps immensely, but you wouldn't have blamed this defense for taking a step or two back after they lost both Diggs and Vander Ash for the season to various injuries. That has not been the case, though. And now the Cowboys find themselves as the co-division leader in the NFC East. The possibility, outside possibility, mind you, of catching the 49ers for the best record in the NFC. Look, Dallas needs to finish with a better record than San Francisco and may need to finish with a better record than the Philadelphia Eagles as well. I think one of the tiebreakers is rival within or uh, record within your conference. Considering that they do have that loss to San Francisco and they also lost to Arizona. I think they're behind the eight ball with Philly in that regard. Now San Francisco's end of season schedule is much easier than what the uh, Cowboys are dealing with down the stretch. At Arizona, Baltimore at home, at the Commanders, and at the Rams to end the season. Cowboys aren't done many favors, but look, they have passed these first two tests with flying colors, so you feel good about at the Bills, who are very up and down, At the Dolphins, who just lost to Tennessee last night. What the hell, Miami? They play the Lions at home. That's going to be a national TV game. I believe it's Sunday night football. Excuse me, that's a Saturday night game. And then they end the year at the Commanders, who will uh, certainly have folded it in by that point. Some would argue that they already have. Pat Mahomes, unfortunately, earned a few haters with what happened in the Chiefs-Bills game over the weekend. If you missed it, the Chiefs had an opportunity to take a lead on the Buffalo Bills late in the game. And they actually did take a lead, temporarily, when Pat Mahomes found... Travis Kelsey for what looked like a go-ahead touchdown that was nullified by an offside penalty, an offensive offside penalty, which you very rarely see. But if you watch the replay, Kadarius Toney was clearly offside and he didn't do the one thing that a receiver is taught from birth to do when lining up on the line of scrimmage. That is, look to the sideline and point to that ref and make sure that you are onside. Kadarius Tony didn't do that. What a disaster he has been in Kansas City. No wonder why the Giants got rid of him last year. And regardless of the rule being fairly cut and dry, I don't care if they don't usually call something like that. You don't normally see an offensive player lined up offside like that. The Chiefs 
acted like damn fools in the aftermath of that. Pat Mahomes, who I think this is more of a reflection of just how frustrating his season has been so far this year, really acted out of character and kind of acted like a baby in the process. Andy Reid had some things to say after the game, and the Chiefs were unwilling to concede that one of their guys just made a really stupid mistake in the moment. Mahomes is still complaining about it to Josh Allen in their post-game handshake. Very strange look for Pat, but again, I get why he would be frustrated at this point in the year. Because other than Travis Kelsey, he's not getting a whole lot of help on offense right now. To Mahomes' credit, he did express regret on the sideline outburst, how he was having to be restrained from, let's call his communication with officials, and then also his interaction with Josh Allen after the game as well. And hopefully this is a uh, a learning lesson for Pat Mahomes and keeping his cool. Because he normally does keep his cool. He's one of those guys. You think about superstars in all the major sports. Like, he is one of the most likable guys. But that was uh, not a good moment for him. And nobody is perfect. So not going to hold that against him going forward on this show. Although I'm also not rooting for the Chiefs to make another Super Bowl run this year. All right, that is it for our NFL chatter for this segment. We may continue some more later in the week. Coming up next, though, it is a multi-segment chat talking Austin food with Statesman food critic Matthew Odom. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Elling. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Elling. As the football season begins to slow down with college football at a bit of a lull right now, other than the transfer portal and National Signing Day 1, which happens in a couple of weeks, gives me the opportunity to get more into some of the things that I love in life beyond sports, and that includes food, which gives me a great reason to talk to uh, one of my favorite folks in town who not only knows food, he covers food for a living. It is Matthew Odom. He is the Statesman's restaurant critic and reporter. You can find his dining guide, which came out at the start of November at austin360.com slash dining guide. Make sure to give him a follow on Instagram as well at Matthew Odom. That's O-D-A-M. And follow him on Twitter at Odom. That is O-D-A-M. Matthew, always a pleasure. How you doing today, man? I'm great, man. Thanks for uh, having me on. It's good to catch up with you. Yes, it is always a pleasure, and uh, you did something a little bit different for this year's Dining Guide, whereas in years past, uh, it would be a comprehensive list of places new and old. You chose to focus on newer places with this this year's Diner's Guide. Why did y'all make that decision? You know, I was thinking, unfortunately or fortunately, you know, it's good for business for folks, but people kind of have their minds made up oftentimes about you know, I've been to Daidue or I've been to Emmer and Rye or I, I know what I think about Vespaio and I think people kind of have calcified opinions about one place or another and I, I intend to return to those kind of bigger lists at some point but I think people always want to know like what's new, what's interesting, what's kind of defining this year in Austin Dining and so I thought this year we did it once during the pandemic and uh, people loved it and so I thought we'd we'd try it this year. Uh, a lot of interesting places have been opening up, kind of often smaller places, not super, you know, not 
not big um, companies, not super well funded, not massive marketing budgets or, you know, $3 million build outs at restaurants. Um, though there are a few of those. Um, and so I thought just kind of this hodgepodge of smaller places and kind of alternative uh, service styles kind of fit the era right now. And so I thought it'd be fun to focus on those this year. I'm not going to Sophie's Choice you and have you pick out your favorite of these 20 new places this year. What I'll do instead, I guess, is make the embarrassing admission that while there are some places on my list of spots that I want to try, I've been to any of these places so far. And so uh, <laughs> we're going to start selfishly for me with some of the spots that uh, that I've had my eye on for a while now and just have not made the effort to get to. Unfortunately, with a family of four, we are creatures of habit. So there are places, even though we're out in Cedar Park, places we go in Austin, but it's like we go to the same places over and over again, whether it's Bufalina Douay on, uh, on Burnett, or we will uh, go down to Fresa's or someplace like that. Uh, we haven't made the effort to go to some of these other spots, but that's going to change in 2024, damn it, based on this conversation. So let's start <laughs> with uh, a spot that is uh, number one on my list in terms of where I want to go. This is it's going to be a date night spot and I not taking the kids there for the very first time, but I am a big sucker for Mediterranean food for middle Eastern food. Therefore ease off is a spot that I really want to try out. Uh, why do you think ease off is one of the uh, best new restaurants in Austin? You know, it's a, it's this exciting, um, mixture of flavors. It's a laid back atmosphere. Um, chef Bertie Richter is from Israel and he wanted to focus on the Galilee region of that country, which kind of has a mixture of different ethnicities and um, religious groups and cultures and cuisines. And um, it's just exciting food, whether it's the the shawarma, there's a chicken dish that's great on there um, that's kind of stacked and spit-fired. The lamb dish um, is great. But the the interesting thing is, you know, I've got a story coming out on Tuesday – or excuse me, what is today? <laughs> Monday? Is today Tuesday? Today's Tuesday, I've got a story yeah. coming out on Wednesday <laughs> of my 10 favorite new dishes or my 10 favorite dishes from new restaurants this year. And uh, I selected one from Izov and it was actually um, their smashed cucumber dish, which has um, some pickling uh, spices on it. Um, and it's got these nigella seeds and it's served on a really, really smooth labna and so and, and scattered with some dill and some fresh herbs. So anytime you can serve uh, a dish as simple seemingly as cucumbers and it be one of the 10 best dishes at a new restaurant in town, you know you're doing something right. So uh, it's kind of one of those dishes where, you know, people go say, hey, have you been to Izov or uh, hey, I'm going to Izov and it's one of the first dishes that that always pops up. So anytime a, a restaurant has a dish that is that much of a hallmark, uh, you know that's a good thing, even if it's just cucumbers. So um, it, it's, it's a fun space. I like to go – actually, I've been a few times. My, my favorite time was going and sitting at the bar by myself. Um, it's in the old Pitchfork Pretty space. Uh, mm. There's kind of some graffiti on the wall. I don't know if it's supposed to kind of um, reference like the Tel Aviv nightlife and late, di- late night dining scene. But it's really casual, um, kind of a scruffy spot. Um, but it's, it's one of those places that's really fun to pull up to at the bar, maybe go find a corner seat with you, you and your wife and, and sit at the bar instead of a table and kind of get immersed in the energy a little bit more there. Now, another spot on the 20 best new places in Austin list, 
that you came out with in the uh, Statesman and Austin360.com back in early November. Uh, shouldn't surprise anybody that it is on this list. After all, it does come from Aaron Franklin. Spoke with Aaron about his most recent book, Smoke, uh, a little bit more than a month ago. And he obviously had great things to say about Uptown Sports Club. But Aaron Franklin has evolved in something food-wise that's going to be good. Franklin Barbecue, Loro, and now Uptown Sports Club. What makes Uptown Sports Club so special? You know, a couple different things. There's one, there's the the aesthetic and the vibe and they've, they've taken this old, you know, bar that was on, you know, everybody in Austin that's been here for more than five years uh, is familiar with it. It's that corner entry bar with the pennant signing that's been around for 70 years. I think it was a butcher shop at one point. It was a an East Austin bar for a long time that was big in the Mexican-American community. Um, and it had fallen into disrepair and was shuttered for I mean, almost a decade. I think at one point, if you remember, like five or ten years ago, a group of rascals uh, printed some Chili's East banners and put them up over there, <laughs> uh, trying to trick people uh, into thinking that the gentrification had come for East Sixth Street in the form of a Chili's. <laughs> um, and but they've they've teamed up with Michael Shue Architecture and Tanaya Hills uh, from Bunkhouse to redesign this place and give it a feel of New Orleans with. Uh, a back patio with these wrought iron bars with uh, greenery growing on it. It's the uh, they've got this tile floor um, and some original pressed tin ceiling uh, roof, and the bar has been fully refurbished. They basically emptied the place out and and went from scratch. They've got the old uh, the bars on the windows there. It's just got such a vintage historic look to it, but it, it's new, but it feels like it's been around for. 80 years and it kind of has one of those new Orleans feelings where you could just kind of wander in and have a drink and maybe a shrimp cocktail. Next thing you know, you're eating a po' boy and hanging out for a couple hours and you've put a base down and you think, Oh, maybe it's time to move on to whiskey. And then you realize the burger comes on the menu at 4 PM and Oh, there's a bar steak and Hey, let's, let's get a bottle of champagne. You know, it's just kind of one of those, let's just hang out. It's one of those places that makes me wish I didn't have a, a family or, or a mortgage payment, um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, or or that I lived in one of those condos over there in East Austin. Yeah. Um, Aaron had family from Louisiana, um, so he used to eat um, a lot of gumbo and that kind of food growing up. He always called his in like roasts, and uh, he calls his gumbo his liquid brisket. So he's tinkered with it for a long time. He's it's always been a passion project of his. So I think when they opened, it might have been. Um, you know, confusing to some people that that would be his next move. But Louisiana food has always kind of been in his bones. Uh, the shrimp po' boy there is probably the best um, I've had anywhere in the city. Um, so it's got a roast beef po' boy, which is made with drippings from Franklin barbecue brisket. Um, then you've got like a, a crab louie. You've got oysters. So there's homages to kind of San Francisco dining as well. Aaron just says it's all the food that he likes to eat. Um, and so that's a pretty good starting point. Moving on now to a place, just got some love from Esquire, one of their best uh, new restaurants in America. That would be Este. This town obviously does Mexican really well, whether you're talking Tex-Mex or interior Mexican. If there's maybe some room for growth, it is uh, Mexican seafood. Wife and I went and took a trip to, uh, to Cabo, uh, early this year and uh, absolutely fell in love with the cuisine on the peninsula. I don't know if this is Baja Peninsula uh, Mexican seafood, but uh, it is still obviously getting a lot of love. What do you love about Este? You know, Este, obviously from the owner of Suerte, uh, Sam Hellman Moss, who was one of the original partners in 
and Odd Duck, and I believe Barley's Fine, um, and his chef, Fermin Nunez, who's now kind of, you know, I'd say right now he's maybe the face of of uh, Austin Dining um, in terms of his national attention and just kind of the way he presents on social media and his personality. He has a Sunday get-together at his house uh, with a bunch of chefs and people in the community. Um, so he's done a really good job of fostering community. Este kind of goes all around Mexico to the different coastal regions for dishes. It's a it's a really beautiful restaurant, but you know it's a lot of fun. So it's kind of painted in these muted natural tones of, of sand and sea. Um, it's kind of uh, you know austere and kind of its uh, casual elegance almost. It's built into the old East Side Cafe space over there on Mainer Road, and they've revamped the gardens over there and pumped them up. A uh, huge garden project over there now, so they source a lot of their own vegetables. But the seafood, you know, my favorite part of the seafood is is the raw bar preparations, the ceviches, the tostadas. Of course, they you know make their own um, masa and house, uh, nishtamalize their own corn, and um, the clams preparados. The you know you can get oysters with a little bit of I think there was tuna belly on them one time, and maybe a, a little bit of roe. Um, so fantastic raw dishes, then also really great cooked dishes. They had a turbo that had this kind of buttery anchovy sauce on it that was super rich. So you go from kind of light stuff to really robust flavors. They've got a, a butterflied uh, shrimp dish served shell on that's uh, in this chili butter, this castaño chili butter uh, that's just the messiest and best seafood dish in town. So uh, it looks like they've uh, hit another home run between Este and Suerte. Those are probably, you know, two of the three or four best Mexican and seafood restaurants in town. He is Austin American statesman, restaurant critic, and reporter Matthew Odom. We are discussing his 2023 Austin Restaurant Dining Guide, all the best new restaurants in the city. Coming up, more of those new restaurants on the other side. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Elling. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Elling. Back with Statesman restaurant critic and reporter Matthew Odom. We are discussing his best new restaurants of 2023 dining guide. It can be found at austin360.com slash dining guide. Like many people, I am a sucker for a good fusion concept, which is why uh, I have been uh, drawn, my eyes and my mind have been drawn to Ramen Del Barrio, even if my palate hasn't actually been there just yet. Uh, it se- seems like uh, an automatic winner, uh, combining the uh, the wonderfulness of uh, fresh-made ramen with uh, some of those Mexican spices and cooking methods. And uh, I guess based on this list, Ramen Del Barrio has nailed that process. Yeah, they have. Uh, the chef there is f- fusing Mexican and Japanese cuisine. And um, he calls, just like Aaron calls uh, gumbo his liquid brisket, <laughs> Christopher calls um, his carnitas um ramen is is liquid carnitas and mm. and it delivers on those big flavors they also do these um skewered um grilled skewered meats and octopus and um pork belly and serve those in tacos so the skewers are just as good as the ramen you can wait a little bit there sometimes people need to remember it's just a uh, it's just a food court stall in the hana world market there up um, off palmer lane and They've gotten a lot of attention in recent months, so you might have to wait a little bit longer uh, than you expect sometimes, but your patience is rewarded with some some big, bold flavors out of that place. And it's kind of one of those places, you know, just like um, P. Thai Cow Man Guy, um, which is also in Hong Kong Supermarket uh, in North Austin off Research Boulevard. 
there's several places on this list that you're just going to find that aren't traditional restaurants uh, the way we've thought of them in the past. And I think a lot of that is um, an effect of coming out of COVID, people wanting to work for themselves, people scratching together just enough money you know, to pay rent at a place like that as opposed to putting together a restaurant group uh, and a big business plan that requires you know tens of thousands of dollars of funding. So that's also one of the great things about that spot is that it's indicative of kind of some of this shoe leather operations that have been going on in, in recent years as a fallout of the pandemic. Yeah, generally speaking, and look, uh, you, you give credit to people for uh, for making do with what they have in front of them. But one enjoyable aspect of loving food is finding those places that are really unassuming. They're not necessarily necessarily in a spot where you would assume a, a great food place would be. But then you go in there and you can just uh, tell by the smell, much less when you actually uh, when you actually taste what's going on, just how good it is. And uh, just another great example of never judging a book by its cover, I guess. Yeah, there's, you know, Wee's Cozy Kitchen, which is over there by campus. Um, the woman there, uh, Wee Fong Ehlers, she's been working at UT in some capacity, I think for about 20 years, cooking in, in various dorms and for students. And she was kind of running a, uh, I think she works at the Castilian now. She's Malaysian and she was cooking kind of Chinese, Chinese-American dishes that you'd be expecting along with like uh, bar food, like burgers and wings out of this gas station uh, restaurant in the back of a gas station at like 24th and i think san jacinto um and she put a special on her menu uh earlier in the year of some classic malaysian dishes like beef rendang and they were a huge hit and now you know people wait in line whether it's in line or they're just waiting for her to cook because usually it's her and one other person back there Uh, so you might wait 30 minutes or an hour for a dish depending on when you get there um and she's now got this excellent Malaysian uh, restaurant, as it were, in the back of this Shell gas station. And hopefully she'll get some funding. And, you know, she joked that, you know, she likes the security and the and the, the safety and of her of her job at UT. But I think uh, her success is probably going to almost force her hand to open up a restaurant because uh, the cooking is that good. And you don't find a lot of Malaysian, um, a lot of Malaysian cuisine in Austin. No, you don't. I was completely unfamiliar with that spot. And I've heard the name Underdog, and I've had some people tell me it's really good, but I know nothing about that. So what's to know about Underdog and why it made this year's list? I kind of joke when I wrote about Underdog that maybe I was a little bit, you know, it's hard not to get pessimistic after you've been around this game for a (laughs) while. And, you know, you hear, you might know something about that. You hear, uh, you know, chefs from Los Angeles are moving to Austin and they're going to open a wine shop slash restaurant and it's going to be in some slick apartment building or condo building in South Austin. And they're going to have Korean fried chicken. And it just kind of starts to sound like a, a new Austin Mad Lib. Um, <laughs> and so I was skeptical and I went and it was really great. The, the space is modern, but it it's colored in these kind of um, natural tones of green and brown that kind of bring the outdoors in and it's wrapped in glass. It almost feels like kind of a corner spot in an old, you know, village restaurant in New York City, even though, you know, it's super modern. It just kind of has that inviting hang a while, walk in off the street kind of thing going on. Um, and so, yeah, the the owners there are um, serving Korean inspired dishes like fried chicken. And there's a crispy rice dish uh, that's layered with crab and, and roe uh, that's really good as well. They also serve a shrimp burger. Uh, and they serve a bulgogi uh, flavored beef burger. Uh, those are both great. 
they get that because um, the co-owner Claudia Lee, her mother, is uh, Korean and kind of came in and and helped them tweak some some recipes. Um, the her co-owner is her husband. Uh, I don't know if they're married yet or if they're just um, fiancés. Um, but his name is Richard Hargrave, and he's worked uh, in the Momofuku Empire in the past uh, in the wine department. So they've got some fun natural wines. They're moving kind of a little bit to, towards a, a bigger French selection um, and doing some different stuff on both the food and wine menu here moving into the new year. So I'll be interested to go back and, and see what they have up their sleeves. Now, as part of uh, this year's restaurant guide, you did uh, put three more iconic Central Texas institutions into that Austin 360 Restaurant Hall of Fame. Uchi, Joe's Bakery and Coffee Shop, and Magnolia Cafe are now Hall of Fame members. Let's start with Uchi. Obviously, a lot of people are familiar with Uchiko at this point, but Uchi is the OG. So why does uh, Uchi finally make it in, Matthew? Well, Uchi made it. This was the first year that Uchi was eligible for entrance. Um, you have to have been open for 20 years to be uh, included. Um, they're just my rules. I just created this Hall of Fame about three years ago, I think. Uh, so Uchi turned 20 earlier this year, I think in March, um, you know, right there on South Lamar. Uchi just changed dining in Austin, period. Um, changed fine dining, changed what you could expect of service, what you could expect of flavors, um, what you could expect of execution and ambiance. Um, Tyson Cole was living in Austin and was actually working as an assistant manager at a grocery store where Loro is now. And his grocery store, I can't remember the name of it. It got purchased by Randall's, I believe. And they offered him half as much money for, I think, a lesser position. So he quit. The way he tells it, he was looking for a job. His girl, he was living with a girl. She told him, you better get a job or you're going to you know, need to get out of this apartment and this relationship. So he was walking around downtown Austin one day, going into every place he could to try and find a job. Was, wasn't having any luck. Tried to go to the elephant room, and it was locked. So he turned around to leave and then saw that there was a staircase leading up from elephant room. It wasn't labeled. He didn't know what it was, but he thought he'd go up there. Opened the door, and it was Kyoto, as longtime Austinites will remember. Oh, yeah. And um, asked them for a job, and they called him later that day and said, can you work night and day shifts? And he said, yep. And that changed the course of Austin dining history and just a a bit of curiosity and desperation and a uh, edict from a a girlfriend. You know, he didn't grow up some kind of Japanophile um, or sushi um, lover. He was actually a visual artist, which, you know, I've heard that story from a lot of chefs and um, that's an expensive, expensive art to get into um, or career to try and create. And um, so he didn't have any familiarity with it. And he started working there immediately fell in love with the people and the culture and the customs and the cuisine ended up working for smoke a fuse at um musashino of course on mopac uh where he worked for several years and uh, smoky became his sensei and he decided he wanted to open a restaurant that the whole restaurant felt like you were dining at the sushi bar in terms of the attention to detail and the service and he and his um, partner at the time daryl kunick opened up uchi um, he immediately started working with the talent that he brought in, whether it was Paul Key or Philip Spear, uh, to create these dishes with exciting flavors that you weren't used to seeing on a sushi plate. So whether it's uh, the Magura with goat cheese and apple, 
um, whether it's candied quinoa on top of a piece of uh, fluke, um, just various textures and flavors uh, that people weren't really trying with sushi at the time and for these cold tastings that he would do. And then he started getting, um, I think he became a food and wine best new chef very early on, uh, which really changed everything in terms of his access to ingredients and quality. But he really established kind of a way of doing business from the kitchen to the front of house that was very systematic and, and very regimented. And that's how they kind of reached this level of um, exceptional execution um, from the kitchen to the front of house. And somehow we're able to replicate it and in such a way that I wrote, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, a story about 25 different chefs who have come through Uchi who now own or run their own restaurants um, wow. across the country. So to have 25 alumni come through your kitchen and end up running their own place lets you know that people learn not only how to cook there, but they learn how to run kitchens there. They learn how to give hospitality there. So really, you can't overstate the influence that that Uchi and Tyson Cole and Daryl Kunick and and his vision to, you know, kind of put the money up for Tyson at the beginning of this thing led to, you know, the Austin dining scene as we know it and has affected, you know, dining really across the country. It's like a Nick Saban coaching tree there. And the visual <laughs> art background makes sense because so many dishes that come out of the kitchen to Uchi and Ujiko look like freaking works of art. He said the thing that he loved the most the reaction that he'd get from people when he'd hand them a piece of sushi and that his search at Uchi has always been for the perfect bite and creating the perfect bite for the guests, seeing their expression when he handed it to them. And that was kind of the the idea that he wanted to try and multiply throughout the dining room and create the sushi bar experience, you know, for 120 people at a time. He is Matthew Odom, the Statesman's restaurant critic and reporter. We are discussing his 2023 Austin Best New Restaurants Dining Guide and those three new restaurants that are in the Hall of Fame. Coming up, we will discuss the other new Hall of Fame restaurants and more. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Elling. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Elling. Final segment with Statesman restaurant critic and reporter Matthew Odom talking about his 2023 Austin Dining Guide, lays out the best new restaurants in the city and those three restaurants that now find themselves in the Hall of Fame. And speaking of, Joe's Bakery and Coffee Shop is someplace that pretty much everybody has been to at this point as well. Why, why do they make the list or why do they make the Hall of Fame, Matthew? You know, that, that I definitely wanted to include um, uh, uh, East Austin Institution um, like Joe's. Joe uh, Avia doesn't patrol the restaurant anymore. He's been passed for a while, but um, his granddaughter and one of his daughters uh, do still. So it's still in the family and it's just an institution of the community. Um, they're big into um, supporting um, voter registration. Uh, but more than anything, it just feels like you're dining in your grandmother's house. And part of that is because, you know, for um, Regina Estrada, who runs the place with her mother, Rose, now it, it really was her grandmother's house. If she wanted to see her grandmother when she was growing up, hmm. they'd have to go to the restaurant, uh, which opened in 1962. And she'd spend her days there. Um, all of the kids and grandkids grew up um, through that restaurant over there on, on East 7th Street. Um, and it started out as a, as a bakery and a taqueria. Um, Joe had owned a, a bakery before that, El Oriental. Uh, nearby and then changed uh, changed the name to Joe's 
And so it started as kind of a humble taqueria and bakery. And his wife was actually working, I think, at HEB over there on um, Burnett. And when she came over and joined the kitchen, that's when things really stepped up. And you started getting some more home-cooked dishes and your carne guisada, which uh, which they make with pork. Um, it's excellent. The breakfast dishes there are obviously great. Um, so it's just it, – it, it's, it's simple and direct and straightforward and delicious and family-run and a big staple of the community. I'm not alone when saying that I think I've eaten a meal at Magnolia Cafe at pretty much every hour of the day, including uh, plenty of late night meals that were heavily influenced by alcohol and a long night on 6th Street. Uh, but I guess it's time that uh, Magnolia Cafe gets its due, considering how many bellies it's fill- filled over the decades. That's right. It's been around now on South Congress for 35 years. Um, the one on Lake Austin Boulevard, Kent Cole opened as Omletree West uh, with Ken Carpenter, the open of Omletree, um, and was running it with his wife briefly, his first wife. Um, and they eventually opened over on South Congress in 1988. Uh, Kent is a great dude. He was born in Austin, kind of raised in Louisiana, came back here right after high school. He's kind of a an old Austin art freak at heart. He lived in the Montrose area for several years, uh, playing in a band in Houston, and so you can definitely, like, when you kind of get that kitschy art freak vibe from Magnolia, I think a lot of that comes from his time in, in Houston as well, in the Montrose area. Um, it's interesting, Kent said that, you know, if it wasn't for his divorce from from his first wife, who who went on to um, marry a man that they opened, Kirby Lane. So I don't know if everybody knows that, that uh, the, the, the husband and wife that were running uh, Magnolia over on Lake Austin, his wife left married the man that they started Kirby Lane with. And so uh, it's all good. There's no uh, discord from uh, all, all appearances. It doesn't, but, it doesn't uh, have the Dan's Franz animosity to it, huh? It, well, I mean, I think, I don't even think that that had any animosity. I think, I think, oh, okay. I think it's, a, I think a community just likes to tell itself stories. And <laughs> when there's a, when there's a vacuum of information, people, fill in details for whatever's the most the most interesting so, um, so, so are you telling said, me that the guy who made the uh, i-35 split didn't end up offing himself after the fact because he realized how <laughs> terrible a design it was i pray that that's not true and I, yeah. I assume that it's apocryphal god that's terrible the uh the split and so kent after his divorce he said he was he didn't know what to do he didn't really know like his whole life was kind of wrapped up in, in this relationship and he didn't really know how to relate to people and he just realized at that time I need to start asking questions if I'm going to kind of rebuild my understanding of the world, my social scene and whatever else it is. And and so he started asking questions and that interest in people and that interest in community and that curiosity about people has really always informed Magnolia. If you remember, hmm. you go over to the old one on Lake Austin Boulevard and there'd be a piece of paper and it says like, take a piece of paper and you'd fill out a questionnaire and it might say like, if your life was a movie, what would, who would be the actor? What would be the, you know, and it's kind of these random, you know, topic based questionnaires there were kind of conversation starters and you'd write down answers and then you go put it in the box at the end of your meal. And so when you'd sit down for a meal, it would say, you know, grab an empty sheet and grab a filled out sheet. And then you'd read other people's answers. And so they were kind of conversation starters with your friends or just to amuse you if you're eating there by yourself at three in the morning or whatever. <laughs> and I think those questionnaires are kind of indicative of Kent Cole's spirit of um, community and, and curiosity. And I think that's always informed uh, Magnolia, even to this day. And a funny story he told me about the one on South Congress, the first few years, 
they were not making any money. Things were really bad. And his original investor in that second location actually bailed. And so Kent got it. Uh, and now it's, you know, owns a lot of <laughs> very nice property in South Austin. Awesome. Uh, so he stuck with it. And, you know, the late 80s and early 90s, it was just drug dealers and prostitutes and cops. And um, but they, you know, they'd get some family business and, and Kent realized, uh, you know, people were doing drug deals on the payphone in the back by the bathrooms. And so he he, he didn't want to run them off because uh, they were his customers, but he he couldn't have it going on with kids in the restaurant. So he moved the payphone out kind of into the little courtyard um, you know, breezeway between the restaurant and the and the sidewalk. So that's why the the payphone at Magnolia for decades was just sitting out there in front of the restaurant was just to get the uh, the business of the day out of the restaurant. But um, it's always been home to a lot of uh, you know artsy folks. I used to go there when I was you know in my teens and twenties and think that I would never be cool enough to like even I wasn't even cool enough to eat in there. Like the servers were like too 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 cool for me. Um, but of course, as you get older, you realize everybody was uh, kind of a family and part of a community there. And it's it's really one of those uniquely Austin places. What do you think the, the next big food trend is in 2024? Oh. People make all sorts of predictions about these things. And Austin has found itself on the forefront of a lot of this because it's become such a f- good food city over the last 20 to 30 years. You know, I think we'll continue to see we've really become a great um town for for asian food uh south asian food especially indian food um up in williamson county and in northern austin um and there's a lot of a lot of great chinese food and and uh, vietnamese food and thai food up there and i think we're gonna find i don't think people are looking for necessarily a modernization of that cuisine but i think people are looking to branch out more and um I think we're seeing more, you said you live in Cedar Park. I think we're seeing more parts of town get more and more options as traffic gets worse and worse, especially now as the pandemic has kind of receded. Um, So I think neighborhood restaurants and, you know, um, cuisine from outside of the United States, especially Asia, it's going to continue to proliferate. I think, um, I think the service model is, is something that's going to be even a bigger factor you know, you mentioned Birdie's earlier. They're a counter service restaurant. Um, All Day Pizza is on my list of best new restaurants. And I think they're making the best New York style pizza in the city right now. And they serve out of a window at Flo's Wine Bar and Bottle Shop mm. um, on 35th Street, just at the northern edge of Terrytown there. Um, I mentioned the guys that were working uh, different food stalls in the Asian food markets in town. Um, I mentioned we operating out of the back of a shell gas station. I think you're going to find people looking for more Spartan operations and looking for a way to bring their food, um, to folks. And so I think we're finding, uh, I, I think the vibey restaurants are always going to be a part of Austin, especially cause it's such a bachelor and bachelorette party town and, you know, 40th and 30th birthday party town. But I <laughs> think for locals, I think we're going to find more exciting stuff. Um, on the low end, at least, you know, economically, um, you know, I think people are getting tired of paying, you know, $200 for a dinner for two and not remembering anything that they ate the next day. Um, and, and so I think some of the more exciting stuff is going to, is going to happen on the low end. And I, I assume we'll continue to see Austin, uh, businesses, um, franchise outside of, of the city. Um, we've become a good incubator for, for concepts that whether it's a, Torchies or a P. Terry's, um, 
and these are, you know, P. Terry is still independently owned, but opening in different towns uh, around the state and eventually outside of the state, probably. So I think we'll continue to see uh, Austin brands proliferate outside of the city. But I'm most excited about what's happening kind of on the casual end of the spectrum. And think- I think we're also going to see the opposite end, you know, with these omakases and kind of high end intimate experiences. I think we're going to see maybe even club type dining where you have membership, real private high end stuff. There's an embarrassing amount of money in this town. I joked the other day that I was at a gas station on South Amar where, you know, 20 years ago, I used to get offered speakers out of the back of somebody's car while I was pumping gas. And the other day, the guy asked me while I was pumping gas, hey, do you need a swimming pool built? I was like, what? Uh, No, I don't need a swimming pool built. Um, But I do need an affordable meal. So I think, you know, you're going to see places um, that, you know, seat 12 people and cost $350. And you're going to see places that cost, you know, $17 and that you're going to be eating maybe in, in a place that you don't expect. So uh, I'd encourage people's curiosity and uh, and their ability to, to get out of the, of the norm and kind of look around. Love it. Well, uh, he is Matthew Odom, statesman, restaurant critic, and reporter. Check out his Austin 2023 restaurant guide, 20 best new restaurants in Austin at austin360.com slash dining guide. There's also those Hall of Fame restaurants as well that he writes about. Give him a follow on Instagram at Matthew Odom, that's O-D-A-M, and simply Odom on Twitter, O-D-A-M, to follow along with uh, everything that Matthew is reporting on in the Statesman and Austin 360 and beyond with food and uh, occasional sports opinions as well. Matthew, always a pleasure, man. Thank you so much for the time today. Thanks, Trey. Hook them. All right, another show is in the books. Thank you so much for listening today. We'll be back tomorrow at 6. That includes a multi-segment conversation with Justin Wells of Inside Texas, talking Longhorn football and a whole lot more. In the meantime, have yourselves a great rest of the evening and hook them. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Elling.